This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work, Session 1, Origins of the Concept of Race. Bay Love, Director of Development for the Civil Rights Museum in Greensboro, North Carolina, leads a discussion on where the concept of race originated. The Doing Our Work monthly series brings together local experts to present and lead dialogue on concepts to help develop a firmer understanding of the roots and nature of racial inequity and what we can do about it together. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Bay Love. I'm the Chief Operating Officer and Director of Development at the Civil Rights Museum. Um, this isn't actually a civil rights program, civil rights museum program, but clearly it's related to what we do and what we're trying to do over there, right? <clears throat> um, and I just want to say, so the, the topic for today is the origin of race. And I'm actually standing in for Suzanne Plissick, who many of you know. Suzanne has been around Greensboro a lot longer than I have and probably knows this material a lot better than I do uh, since she's one of the people that kind of taught it to me. Um, but I'm going to do my best uh, to deliver it to you guys. But the, the goal of today's session is to really begin to understand where race comes from. I think we all, we all wouldn't be here if to some degree you know, we didn't agree that racism is a problem, however, however you see that, right? I mean, we would argue, as we did in June, that it's a structural phenomenon and it doesn't really have much to do with, oh, I, I dislike Larry because he's white or I like Sally because she's black. It's not that kind of thing, but it's actually institutional and built into our structures and institutions across the board, bar none. It doesn't require bad people or ill-willed people to create the outcomes that we see, and that's why we see them every single system, bar none, right? From preschool suspensions to cancer treatment to police stops and searches to uh, contracting, who gets contracts and who doesn't, I mean, it's just pervasive. Um, so as a community and as a country, if we're going to try to undo racism, we have to understand what it is. <coughs> And since racism is all about race, you can't really understand racism without understanding race. So, and what, you know, what race is and sort of where it came from. And so that's what this session is really about. Um, and, and what I've found in my experience doing civil rights work and racial equity work is that for the most part, people in the United States are pretty confused about what race is. I mean, we're just kind of all over the place. So if I, I mean, if I were to ask this room right now, what is race? I can guess some of the things that would come up. People would say, well, it's skin color, right? You know, physical features. Maybe it's ethnicity. Maybe it's where you're from. Some people might say it's culture or the language that you speak. Some people would say, I don't know what of those it is, but it's definitely biological. I mean, definitely it's biological, people would say. And uh, which of all those things that I named, or if there's something else, which one of those is correct? It's actually none of them, right? Because is race skin color? Can you tell someone's race by the color of their skin? You literally can't. I mean, there's some African-American people that are lighter than some white people. Right? I mean, it's the whole phenomenon of passing, right? We, I mean, for a long time, there's been history of black people passing for white, but as we know now, thanks to Rachel Dolezal and other people, there's also been white people passing as black. 
So you definitively, you can't say that it's color. You can't tell someone's race by their color. You can't really by their physical features either, right? I mean, there's African-American people with straight hair that's uh, straighter than some of my cousins, right? I mean, nose shape, body shape, just none of that stuff holds up. Culture, obviously not, right? Because we can have, you know, African-American people, white people, they both have North Carolina culture or Maine culture, but different races. Country of origin, that doesn't even really work. There's probably black people and white people in this room, and maybe some Latino people too, that all have Irish ethnicity. Right? So ethnicity is not the same as race. So we really get in this conundrum about, well, what is this thing? It determines just about every life outcome for people in this city. Right? You can predict educational outcomes, health outcomes, criminal justice outcomes, et cetera, et cetera, and we don't even really know what it is. So that's what, that's what we're going to And then we say, maybe we say it's a social construction, right? Well, race is socially constructed, and so we all know that. But, you know, we want to look at exactly how was it socially constructed and when and why, right? Um, so does anyone right off the top, do, do people know, do you have a general sense of when race was constructed? Like when did the concept of race as we know it kind of come into being? Yeah, it was, so someone said 17, it was really kind of like the 1700s. Anthropologists say that 1749 was the first time that the term race was used in the scientific way that it is. And it was this guy named Buffon, right? And he was French, and he was part of you know, this whole tradition of people like Linnaeus and Buffon and Blumenbach, and later would come Alexander von Humboldt. And they were all in the business of sort of classifying things. Right? You know the animal kingdoms? The mammals and the amphibians and the reptiles and all that? That came out around the same time. Because Europeans were just exploring everything and we were just classifying everything and you know, putting Latin names to it and different scientific names so that we could kind of have everything in our categories. And so it got to a certain point with all that classification that people said, well, we've got to classify humans as well. And so Buffon was the first one to sort of classify humans. And he used the word race but he didn't quite go all the way to what race is today because Buffon didn't really put any value judgment on the different races. It was a guy named Blumenbach who came later who wrote a book called On the Natural Variety of Mankind. And the first edition was 1775. Think about, remember that date, 1775. And he came out with a book called On the Natural Variety of Mankind where he you know, laid out different classifications of human beings. And he actually had five racial classifications, and then they, you know, that sort of morphed as scientists were going back and forth you know, and, and adding and subtracting and readjusting and tweaking the science. And, they, and, and ultimately, there were sort of three main classifications plus one, which became like the, the most widely accepted racial classifications. Does anyone remember what those are? So, some people who are older when I'm talking about this, it, people actually learned it in school. Like if you look at it in the encyclopedia, it's actually still there. There's a scientific uh, word. There's an ending, O-I-D, oid. Caucasoid, negroid, mongoloid, and there was one more. Australoid got added like a little, a, a little bit later. So I'm just going to write these out because this is, this is kind of helpful to see. So you have Caucasoid, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, right? Oh, yep, Australoid, 
Negroid. And so these really become the first main racial classifications. And I said that Buffon didn't put a value judgment on it, but Blumenbach did. So we want to talk a little bit about that. So there's, this was science, right? What, the science that these guys were doing, and you've seen these eerie pictures of craniology and phrenology where they actually measure the skulls, and you see these charts of just skull after skull after skull, and they're measuring the width of the eyes and the nose and the brain and so forth. Um, and that was what they were using to sort of develop these racial classifications. <clears throat> so this is physical anthropology, Blumenbach, and, and why do you think they chose the name Caucasoid? Is the Caucasus Mountains, right? <clears throat> Um, so there's, you know, with the racial classification, there's a place, right? So it's the Caucasus Mountains. And, um, you know, also right from, the, right from the very beginning, there was a color assigned to the different races, right? So Caucasus was, you know, white. The color was white. And it, was, it would be white people or European people, right? And so that was the science of it. Now, why did they choose? So Blumenbach, who was from Germany, and you can sort of tell that by his name. His name was Friedrich Blumenbach. Why would he, thank you. Why would he have chosen the Caucasus Mountains as the place for white people? It, it's a little bit weird, right? Because he could have chosen Germany and you know, made it Germanoid, or Buffon was French. He could have been you know, Francoid or something like that, but they co- chose Caucasoid. And there's actually, if you go and read Blumenbach's work, it's really amazing. He talks about why he chose it. And it was because it was a skull that he believed to be Georgian. The Caucasus Mountains are sort of like Eastern Europe and the Balkans region. It was a skull that he believed to be Georgian, and he didn't, and what he said was that, the, that it was the most beautiful and shapely of all the skulls that they had. And that that's how he knew that it was the European or Caucasian skull. They were going, which one of these is us? They didn't dig up the one in their backyard and say, oh, that's the one. You know, they dug up the one over in the Georgia mountains, which was to them the most beautiful, and therefore it must have been theirs. Later, other scientists would add to that and say, well, there's a lot that we can predict from the skull, um, you know, which is not just about the beauty of the skull itself. You know, again, this is ob- objective science, right? You know, how beautiful a particular skull is. But not only is it the beauty of the skull, but we can tell something by the size of the skull because the larger the skull, the larger the cranial cavity. The larger the cranial cavity, the bigger the brain. And the bigger the brain, the smarter the the person. Right? So this all explains now why European people are in control of all the resources and have managed to enslave and kidnap everybody else because, lo and behold, we not only have the most beautiful skulls, but we also have the largest ones and the biggest brains. So this is all kind of making sense now, right, in terms of our worldview. And it's all very scientific, right? Because so let's follow the pattern. So Caucasoid is the Caucasus Mountains. That's white. Mongoloid, what's the landmass that goes with Mongoloid? Mongolia, right? Very scientific. So, and that's related to, you know, that's a place that's actually in Asia. And so Mong- Mongoloid is sort of the representation for Asian people, right? And the color that goes with that is, of course, yellow, right? And so started in the 1700s, sticks with us today, right? So we have Mongolia, the yellow people of the world. <clears throat> and then Australoid, of course, is Australia. And they had to make a separate category for Australoid because... The aboriginal people of Australia didn't really fit into any of the others. They were too dark to be Mongolian, right? But their hair was too straight, and their bodies were too different to be Negroid. So they sort of made a separate category called Australoid, 
right? And then at a certain point, they didn't know what to do with the, you know, the American indigenous Americans, so they would sort of get lumped into the Australoid category or pulled out, you know, as these different scientists were writing their treatises, the, 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 um, the, the classification would change a little bit, but that was the root of it. So it was Australoid was Australia, and, you know, they were sort of, um, you know, from Australia, and they were sort of red or brown was their color, right? <clears throat> so then we get to Negroid, and, um, you know, those, of course, black people, right, um, or people from Africa, and what's the, what's the land base that goes with Negroid? Negralia. Negralia, right? <laughs> and, the, and so this, the chilling thing about this is this is where the science breaks down, right? Because here we go. Caucasoid, you know, is linked to a land, a land, mace, a land mass. What, is, what does a land mass presume? It presumes that a per, a people have a, a culture, a history, a place that they're from, right? Think about your home where you're from, what that means for your identity, for your family, right? Mongoloid, Mongolia, they have a place that they're from. They have a history. They have family. They have roots. Australoid, same thing. But when it gets to Negroid, there's not a place on the planet that this so-called scientific group of people comes from, right? Instead, the root word for Negroid is negro, which is black, which goes all the way back to the Greek and the Latin, <clears throat> and also at this time, you know, Spanish and Portuguese are dominating the slave trade, right? Like 90% of Africans that were kidnapped and brought to this hemisphere were actually brought to South America, largely to Brazil. So, <clears throat> so Negroid becomes the classification. Um, this entire group of people is defined scientifically, mind you, not on the place that they're from, but on the supposed color of their skin, right? So as these scientists are laying this out, they essentially take the Negroid people and remove them from the entire family of humanity. Make sense? I mean, these guys could have been Blancoid, right? These guys could have been Amarilloid or whatever it would be in Latin. I don't know what the word is. Geldoid, right? But it literally, everything was linked to a place but negros, right, that was already a word and a thing that was established, which is that if you were of a certain color, you were relegated to a certain class. And the thing about race, the thing that race did for us is that it took a whole kind of worldview and ideology and made it scientific, right? Now, the question becomes, why and how would this happen, right? Was it just a fluke? If I told you this happened in 1775, so the first sort of version of these came out in 1775, Blumenbach. What was happening in 1775 that might have made this, um, if not purposeful, at least apropos? Yeah, the American Revolution was happening, right? So not far from here, closer up to where I'm from, right? People were like meeting and discussing these ideas about humanity and liberation and freedom and that sort of thing. And, you know, we would eventually write this document called the Constitution in which we would say all men are created equal and we hold that truth to be self-evident, right? So how do you create a nation based on that ideal when the economy is the economy like it was here in North Carolina, which is an economy entirely controlled by, controlled by white people, and, and relying almost entirely at that point on African labor. So the only way it can be true that all men are created equal and certain people are enslaved just because of their race is if that particular of people, that particular group of people, 
is actually not human. Right? So not only does the, does the racial classification say that, but this becomes a racial hierarchy, right? Where Caucasoid is the most human, you know, the most beautiful, as Blumenbach would say. And Blumenbach was not like a sort of overt racist himself. He was kind of a, you know, he actually believed, or he would write, at the same time as he would do this, he would write that all men were created equal. I mean, he expressly believed that. It's kind of like um, Claire was talking about the implicit versus the explicit bias. Explicitly, he said, oh, I believe all people are created equal. But implicitly, he said, well, I know this skull is ours because it's the most beautiful and it's the biggest, right, and they have the biggest brains. So this, this science kind of happens and gets kind of twisted like that. But, so that's 1775. That's like when race really gets created. But I want to go back a little bit more to talk about the process that led us up to 1775 because there was a whole history through which this Negro classification and this thing called white was sort of getting created in the United States. Um, and, it go, and I want to go back to Virginia because Virginia is kind of the place where our legal system started, right? So the Virginia House of Burgesses, I mean, Virginia was like the primary English colony. That's where the laws would get set, and a lot of the cultural traditions of what would be the United States would start in Virginia. Um, so who knows when Virginia was founded? This is an easy one. 1607. 1607, and what happened to that colony, though? Jamestown. Right, but they, they came in 1607, but we, weren't, we didn't quite know what we were doing. They died. So they died, right? So they got lost. So, so we think they were in Jamestown. But they came back in 1609, they resettled, and that's when the colony stuck, right? So 1609 was the start of Jamestown. Um, and what was the industry of Jamestown in 1609? Yeah, it was like tobacco. And it actually became, tobacco became the main industry pretty quickly because the English, when they were colonizing, it, it was a business venture. I mean, people, they would literally get chartered by the crown to then come and start a business. And the idea was we're going to you know, generate a cash crop, send it back to England, and create money for the crown. So 1609, Jamestown is founded, and, and tobacco is the industry. And, and what do we know about growing tobacco in terms of the kind of business that it is? Very it's very labor intensive. All right, this is good. You guys are, this is great. So everybody knows this already. I hope this isn't too boring. So, um, so 1609 is very labor-intensive industry. So who, who's going to be the first laborers in Jamestown then? It's not actually the Negroids. Yeah, it's, it's someone said Indians over here. It was like they, but they, they couldn't do, they, they didn't enslave Indians. Instead, John Rolfe married Pocahontas, right? Because the you know, Native American tribes were very matrilineal. If you wanted to get into the power structure, the easiest way to do it was to actually marry a woman because land was passed down through the woman line instead of through the man line like it is for, for the Europeans that come over, right? So John Rolfe marries Pocahontas in 1613. So they can't exactly enslave the Native Americans because the, they know they rely on the Native Americans because, shoot, we had a bunch of us that just died in 1607, right? So we're, 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 we're building relationship with the Native Americans. They're teaching us how to eat corn and make soup and Thanksgiving and all that, right? <laughs> John Rolfe marries Pocahontas in 1613, <clears throat> And the primary labor for the big tobacco industry is actually going to be mostly European indentured servants, right? So 1613, John Rolfe marries Pocahontas. That's, that's an important one. How old was she? Do you all know when, when they married? She was like 12 or 13. So, it, yeah, right. So it was, you know, kind of a political marriage, more than, more than one of sort of love and romance. But um, they marry in 1613, and <clears throat> indentured servitude is the primary um, 
the, the primary economic system because England at the time looked like you know Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. There was just poor people all over the place in England. You know, they'd gone through and they were fencing off the pastures and the commons, right? <clears throat> and so people who used to be farmers and used to be able to sort of take care of themselves were being driven to the city. And, you know, there were all kind of debt relationships that were being put in place. And so debtor's prisons were just overflowing. And if you, can go, if you go to England, if you go to Plymouth or you go anywhere, you can see the old debtor's prisons where people used to um, be put in jail because they owed money. It's kind of a funny logic. You say, you owe me money, Larry, so I'm going to put you in jail until you pay me back. Right? But this worked out very well for people in the United States, what would become the United States, who are looking for labor. So they would go to these debtor presidents and they would say, look, here you are in jail trying to work off your debt. That's not working out too well for you. So why don't we make a deal where you come work for me for four years, I'll pay for your passage to the new world, and then after you finish your indenture, you can have your land. Or have a chunk of the land because there's just plenty of it. right? So, that, so that's the deal. So indentured servants come over and start working. And what do you expect the average life expectancy of indentured servants is? It's right around four years, they estimate, right? And I'm not, I mean, they estimate by, you know, looking at the records of the colonies, looking at the bones that they've excavated, you know. So the indentures are about four years. The life expectancy of indentured servants is about four years. Now, it's mostly white people between 1609 and 1619. In 1619, we see the first Africans recorded coming into Jamestown. And um, it's actually in, oops, It's actually in John Rolfe's diary at the time. He actually writes. There's, there's 19, he calls them Nagars, N-E-G-A-R-S. 19 Nagars arrived in Jamestown. <clears throat> I'm sorry, 20. It was six, 20 Nagars in 1619. Um, and he says that they were, they were purchased basically from a Dutch man of worship. Now, scholars kind of argue back and forth. Were they, were they enslaved or were they indentured servants? Right? Were they slaves? Were they indentured servants? You, you, could, you could argue back and forth all day long. Part of the truth, as Suzanne would say, is that in, in 1619 in Virginia, whether you were enslaved or indentured, there wasn't really that much of a difference. right? But there will begin to be in the future. So now, in 1619, now we've got Europeans and Africans in Jamestown working as indentured servants. right? But the labor system is like you guys said. The people that own the land, there's a few of them, and there's a lot of indentured servants sort of tending to the tobacco and picking it and drying it and then cutting it up and getting it ready to send back to England. So this is all happening. And in 1630, we actually have records that people start living out their indentures. Right? So people used to die you know, as their indentures were sort of coming up, but all of a sudden people start living them out. And as they're living them out, they're claiming their land. So the landowners are like, well, this is not too bad because we've got plenty of land to go around, but actually it was working out pretty well when people were just working for us and, we, and, and all the land that was coming up you know, for, for free you know, was ours. So what do you think they did as the landowners? What, what did they start doing? They, so they didn't turn to slaves just yet. They had a couple more stops that they could pull. But, they, but that's how they were thinking, right? They're thinking economically about this thing, like how are we going to continue to have this be as profitable of a venture as we could since that's what our charter was for, right? I mean, that's what we came here to do. They actually started extending the indentures. <laughs> it's not very fair, right? But listen to how they did it. They did it using something that we would call today the criminal justice system, right? So someone would run away, 
or try to run away or, or do, you know, or steal some corn on the farm or whatever. And then they would, you know, come to the House of Burgesses. And since the House of Burgesses was controlled largely by the people and the family of the people that controlled also the farms, you know, the rulings would tend to go in their favor and the indentures would get extended. So we actually have legal code that later there was a law passed that said that you can't extend the indenture of your indentured servants. Right? But that was like 10 or 20 years later. And why? And why? Now, here's the question. Why would the House of Burgesses that's largely controlled by the, by the ruling class, the, by the landowning class, why would the House of Burgesses pass a law saying that you can't extend the indentures? The, the first thing to notice is that if they made a law preventing it, whatever it was had to have been happening. Right? So if they're going to make a law that says you can't extend indentures as punishment for a crime, that means that some people had to have been extending dentures for, for, for punishment of a crime. Right? So we kind of know that that was happening. But the other thing is that they're actually passing legislation now that's supporting sort of the workers, the indentured servant class. And the reason is because they had so many indentured servants that it was starting to be, like, it was starting to be a little bit unstable. Right? Because let me ask you this. If you're an indentured servant, you sign up for four years, right? And then it's getting close to four, and you, you know, say this work is just too much. Like, this is not looking, you know, I'm not even sure that this guy's going to give me the land that he promised me at the end of the day. And you try to run away, you get caught, and they say, look, I'm really sorry, but your indenture is going to be served, you know, extended to seven years. What might you do? Rebel. You might rebel, right? And I mean, not everybody would. Not everybody would, but some people did. Right, and we have, and I just want to read a little bit because it's just so amazing to hear. Um, you know, people literally start running away, and there's just kind of example after example after example through the 16 and 1700s where people are running away. This is, in the, this is Ronald Takaki from in, in, a, in a Different Mirror. He says, In the early 1660s, for example, a Netra's servant, Isaac Friend, led a conspiracy to band together 40 servants and get arms. He used a rebellious cry, who would be for liberty and free from bondage? Others would join the revolt, friend promised, <clears throat> and together they would go through the country and kill those that made any opposition and would either be free or die for it, right? So they went on to found New Hampshire, live free or die. <laughs> I'm actually not sure about that. But, um, and then another one, again, in 1663, a Gloucester court accused nine laborers of conspiring to overthrow the Virginia government and sentenced several of them to be executed, right? I mean, it gets so bad that Governor William Berkeley, who's a governor in Virginia by 1670, he says that he's worried about the explosive class conditions in his colony where, quote, six parts of seven of the people are poor, indebted, discontented, and armed. Right? So this is the governor writing back to England saying, look, guys, this is not looking good. Six parts of seven, six-seventh of our population is poor, indebted, discontented, and armed. So the parallels between today are incredible, right? I mean, six-sevenths is a little bit less than 99%. But depending on how you want to cut the numbers, there's pretty incredible parallels about who controls the wealth and who doesn't and how people are kind of feeling about it, right? But these, so these revolts are happening again and again and again. And people are revolting and people are running away, right? But as far as we can tell at this time, it's Europeans and Africans running away together, 
right? Because they're all kind of indentured servants. And there's actually records that shows that people were intermarrying, people were running away. Um, 1640 is a case that we should just talk about because it's actually, you know, we have it in the legal record. This is called In the Matter of Color. It's a book by Leon Higginbotham, who was a federal judge, um, who went back and said, I want to look up all the cases in which race was legislated in the early colonies and put it together in this book. And so that's what he did. And um, one of the cases he talks about is in 1640. Uh, it's this guy, John Punch. And John, you know, not just John Punch, but John Punch is an African servant who runs away with a Dutchman and a Scotchman. And I want to read you guys the law just so you know that it's, you know, that this is where it's coming from. Um, so here, here's, here's the actual law. It says, so, so John Punch is the African guy. Victor is the Dutchman. And James Greg- Gregory is the Scotsman. And they all run away together and they all get caught. And then they're brought back to the court. And this is how the trial pans out. It says, one called Victor, a Dutchman, the other a Scotsman named J- James Greg- Gregory, shall first serve out their times with their masters according to their indentures. And one whole year apiece after the time of their service is expired. Right? So they get the, they got to serve out their indentures and they got to do an extra year. And after that service to serve the colony for three whole years apiece. So then they'll go and serve the colony. Right? So that's like the early chain gangs. Right? You, you're in prison, you're going to serve the state. Right? Whether it's making license plates or growing tilapia or whatever they did back in 1690. I don't know. Um, and that after that service, to serve the colony for three whole years apiece. And that the third, being a Negro man named John Punch, shall serve his said master or his assigns for the time of his natural life here or elsewhere. Right? So, y- so y'all got that, right? So that's, that's a sentencing disparity. Right? Same crime. They're all servants. They run away. They come back. The Scotsman and the Dutchman get you know, three plus three, so six years plus one, so they each get seven years extra. John Punch gets life. So Higginbotham says, this is actually one of the first cases that we have in record where slavery, lifetime slavery, goes on record. Because until 1640, all this time up in here, there wasn't actually on record people being enslaved, right? And it certainly wasn't race-based. Because the other thing that we notice about this case is not only the disparate sentencing, but we notice that James Gregory, Victor, and John Punch all run away together, right? What's that? Crime. They do the same crime. Yeah, they, not only do they do the same crime, but they actually commit the crime together. They, they literally ran away together, which tells us that they were working together, living together. They were friends. They had learned to speak the same language. I don't know. Maybe they were both born in Virginia. Maybe you know, John Punch had been brought over from somewhere. I mean, the Dutchman and Scotsman, they'd immigrated, but they, they were bonding together, right, cross-racially. You know, so when people say, I don't know, racism's always been here, it's always, it's always you know, it's always going to be here. You know, birds of a feather flock together. You know, it's just not normal for different races to get along. We never have. We never will. It's just not historically accurate. I mean, we know that people were friends, running away together, living together. There's also legislation that comes around this time that begins to say that miscegenation is illegal, right? That you can't, you can't intermarry. Um, there's actually one, there's one law that I, I think is worth reading just because it's so striking because it also gets at this intersectionality piece. So listen to this. So this is in 1662, 20 years after John Punch. It says, Children got by an Englishman upon a Negro woman 
shall be bond or free according to the condition of the mother. And if any Christian shall commit fornication with a Negro man or woman, he shall pay double the fines of a former act. So there's two parts there, right? The first one says, children got by an English man upon a Negro woman shall be bond or free according to the condition of the mother. That says that an English man, right, having sex or committing rape probably, right, with a Negro woman, that that child shall be bond or free according to the condition of the woman. In other words, by 1660, since the black women are enslaved, that child shall also be enslaved. Right? Is that normal in England? That the child status would be determined by the mother? No. No, everything's determined by the father. Right? Your last name. Right? Your sort of, you know, your class status, who's going to inherit stuff. It's, I mean, we were a patri- patriarchal society. Everything was run through the man. But we go against hundreds of years of history to make sure that Englishmen who are committing rape in Virginia in 1662 can actually then turn around and enslave the children that they have, right? But listen to the second part. The second part that says, and if any Christian shall commit fornication with a Negro man or woman, he shall pay double the fines of a former act. So there's this differentiation between Englishman and Christian. And what, and what Higginbotham shows in this book is that Englishmen actually become synonymous kind of with the owning class, right? Because the English were the first to come. They sort of control thing. And then, and then Christians, are, um, Christians are pretty much everyone else. So the Dutchmen, the Scotchmen, the Irishmen, right? They're all Christian. So while the Englishman can commit that and then enslave his children, other white people, other Europeans, are not allowed to mix, right? So again... We can see that the intermixing is happening, so much so that they have to legislate against it. Right? And the, the reason they don't want the intermixing happening is because John, you know, John Punch is running away, you know, with James Gregory and Victory. There's Victor, there's all of this intermixing happening, which is a really, really a threat uh, you know, to the to the structure of the society as it is. All right, so there we are. So there's John Punch, 1640, right? Ooh, that's a weird four. And then 1662, you see this, this, you know, the laws about anti-miscegenation are, are also happening. Now, all of this sort of comes to a head, in a way, uh, in 1676 with uh, Bacon's Rebellion. And Bacon, Nathaniel Bacon, was actually William Berkeley, who I read before, the governor. It was William Berkeley's cousin. And Nathaniel Bacon was some kind of minor aristocracy who lived kind of out in the western part of the colony. And he was, you know, part of this lower sort of middle class, if you will, that was trying to... Um, take land and basically build their own fortunes outside of the main colony. So Nathaniel Bacon writes to the, writes to the leadership in Jamestown and said, hey, we need some military protection. Like, we're out here expanding the colony against these Native Americans, and you know, we need some, some, some protection from the colony to allow us to expand the colony. And William Berkeley writes back to Nathaniel Bacon and says, sorry, buddy, like, you're on your own. All right, like we're keeping the troops in here, you know, to protect the interests of the general colony. We just can't be out there doing frontier wars, you know, which are basically going to benefit you by getting more land for you. So Nathaniel Bacon says, "Well, we don't really like this. I mean, we're paying taxes to Jamestown, and they're not going to support us with military force. We're also trying to build wealth here. This isn't just about them, you know. This is about us here on the fringes too." And uh, and he actually gathers up a bunch of other people, and he writes a people's decree. And he takes that people's decree and he, and he, with this whole militia and he goes into Jamestown to basically demand justice. 
And William Berkeley and the folks in Jamestown say, look, we love your people's degree. Thanks for writing it, but no can do. Uh, we're, just, you know, we're just not interested in abiding by any of your sort of demands. Uh, so at that point, Nathaniel Bacon really goes back. He arms a whole bunch of people, and he gets this, this sort of what would be a multiracial group of Africans, even some Native Americans, and some sort of, sort of poor Europeans. And they come into town, and they, they take on Jamestown in this full-on rebellion. And it's one of the only rebellions that we have a record of where they actually win. So they basically take over Jamestown. William Berkeley, who's the governor, and his... Um, colleagues get in a boat and go out into the harbor, and that's actually how they save themselves from death, right? And while they're out there, they sort of send a telegram or a letter back to England. It takes months, but the English boats finally come in with the military support and put down the rebellion months later. And when they do, Nathaniel Bacon and his, and his people are, have, have, have sort of made, uh, made themselves safe inside of a fortress just up the river, and that's sort of the last stronghold that falls down. But the British army takes the fortress and captures all of his men. And in that last group of men, there were still Africans, Europeans, and Indians. So again, we see that racial mixture happening, right? But what William Berkeley and his people do, they take Nathaniel Bacon's heads, literally put it on a stake, and post it out in Jamestown so that people know you better not think about doing this ever again. Now, put yourself in the, in the seat of William Berkeley in the landowning class. So here you are. You, you know, you've been running this plantation economy now for about seven years, and think, things have been going pretty well. But you just had a rebellion where all of these sort of farmers and these Africans and some of these Indians who were, you know, who were, I guess, feeling oppressed or you know, they weren't happy about the situation, or whatever. They came in and they almost took over the entire colony. And things are sort of smoldering, and sheep are sort of running around because the. You know, the fence has been knocked down, and you're plotting, and you're thinking, what, you know, what are we going to do to sort of rebuild this colony? I mean, what, what do you think they were thinking? Yeah, they probably thought of a lot of things, but ultimately, they thought of this divide and conquer thing. And we know it wasn't a new idea, right? Because we saw it in John Punch, we saw it in 1662, saying you can't intermarry, and there's a whole bunch of court cases in there that show that this divide and conquer thing was really happening, but it wasn't quite working because they'd been doing it for 20 or 30 years and it hadn't really stuck, right? But after Bacon's Rebellion is the first time that we begin to see this concept of white debated in the House of Burgesses in Virginia, right? Up until this point, if you remember all the laws that I read, it was Scotsmen, Dutchmen, Irishmen. There was no mention of white. There was no mention of black. There was no mention of race, right, per se. But it's only at this time now, after Bacon's Rebellion, that we begin to see race being discussed as a legal term and, all, as a legal term and, and, and you know, what, that's, what that might mean. So in 1691 is the first time that we see the word white actually show up in the legal code of Virginia. So what, is that, what, is, what does the term white then do for the landowning class? It basically says to all of the Dutchmen, the Scotsmen, the Irishmen, look, folks, you should identify more with us than with those African colleagues of yours that you've been escaping with and intermixing with and so on and so forth, Right? So that's 1691 is that the original term white gets used in the legal code of Virginia. And shortly thereafter, 1705, we see the passage of a law called Freedom Dues, which is the law guarantees that a white indentured servant who finishes their indenture 
shall get 50 acres of land, 30 bushels of corn, 10 shillings, and a musket. Right? So, all, so, so, so again, all of those other laws that they were trying to do you know, to separate people didn't quite work, but then they established white. And what was the strategy that they did with the freedom dues? It wasn't about oppressing black people, right? It was about let's give a little something to the folks who are now white people because then for white people it becomes in their interest to do what? Get with the program. Get with the program, right? So as long as we sort of, now it's, that's exactly right. So if you get with the program and you finish your indenture, you know that you got this coming, right? That's an old, you know, I'm like have a business background. That's a tactic in business incentives as well, right? So there's like the stick and the carrot. And it turns out that you know, the, the carrot is actually much more effective for keeping people in a job. And if you give them carrots at random intervals, that's the most effective. So, so people figured this out in 1691. They said, wow, we can't, we can't divide them by prohibiting marriage, by prohibiting running away, by dispersensing, all that stuff's not working. So what we're going to do is create a term white, cause them to identify at a deep level with us more than them, and then we're going to begin to give <laughs> rewards based on whiteness. Right? So that's 1691, and 1705 is freedom dues. The next 70 years, from 1705 to 1775, that is America's rapid ascent to being one of the most powerful countries in the world. Right? 1775, then, is Blumenbach's On the Natural Variety of Mankind, where he now takes this categorization of white and puts science behind it and provides an explanation having to do with the size of the skull and the beauty of the bones as to why whites are in charge of everything. Declaration of Independence is 1776, and we write the Constitution in 1780. Right? So by 1780, this concept of whiteness and even the science of race has been well established, and we write it right into the Constitution. Right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, you know, all men are created equal. Those people that are men, right? And then there's the beings that aren't men that are here. They're not created equal. And they'll be counted as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of balancing power between the Senate and the House. And Native Americans, where do they fit in the Constitution? Not at all, right? Because if the plan for African Americans was to use them as labor, the plan for Native Americans was basically to push them west, annihilate them, or in some cases, assimilate them, whichever came first, right? And I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel, you know, I'm not saying anything up here that's not backed up with facts. If you have any, any doubts about that, go read Andrew Jackson's papers. I mean, it's right there, clear as a bell. You can see it, you know, all the way through our history. So that, we say, is the origin of race. So has race always been here? We say no. I mean, if you look at the King James Version of the Bible, they don't identify by race in the Bible, they identify by groups, by ethnicity, by religion, by where they're from. But this idea of racial classifications that have value, that have you know, intellectual aptitude, that have cultural sophistication attached to them, this, this is an American concept. right? This was really codified in America. There's a book called What Hitler, Hitler's Debt to the United States, where they actually talk about the, the anthropologists that outlined the racial categorization that Hitler used for National Socialism actually came back and studied racial classification in the United States. 
There'd be only three countries that have race built into their constitution, be the United States, developed countries, United States, South Africa, and Nazi Germany, right? Um, so these are the origins of it. So it's gotten us in a bit of a trick bag. The other amazing thing about this is to realize that this racial hierarchy in 1691 is almost the same racial hierarchy that we have today. If you look at the data from any one of our systems, whites always do the best, blacks always do the worst, Asians and Latinos kind of somewhere up and down and in between. So in closing, let me just tell a story about, um, so we say that race is a specious classification of human beings. That means it's false, but it seems real. That was created by Europeans during a period of worldwide colonial expansion for the purposes of maintaining privilege of power, privilege and power, and establishing white as the model of humanity and the height of human achievement. That that's what race is, right? And those are the origins. What's that? Capitalism. Well, you, you, you could argue that, but you could also argue that there couldn't have been the accumulation that there was in Europe had it not been for this race construct. That this, this race construct act, actually allowed for the kind of accumulation that Europe would then um, experience. But yeah, they're very closely intertwined, right? They're very closely intertwined. There's a story about Susan Guillory Phipps, just in closing. She's a woman from Louisiana um, who, who's, whose husband was a traveling salesman. And he wanted to travel abroad. You know, they had, had an opportunity to do some work in Mexico, and he was going to take her with her. So she needed to get a passport, right, to go international, and she didn't have one. So to get her passport, she needed a birth certificate. So she went down to the, the Office of Vital Statistics and said, you know, could I get a copy of my birth certificate because I don't have one. And when they came out with the birth certificate for Susan Guillory Phipps, it didn't say white, where it said, it said race colon. It didn't say W. It said C. It wasn't for Caucasian. It was for colored. Right? And Susan Guillory Fed says, over, over my dead body, I am not colored. I'm white. I mean, look at me. She said, my husband is white. We live in a white neighborhood. My parents are white. You know, I'm definitely white. And they said, Miss Guillory Phipps, we're sorry, but we're, you know, we're the Office of Vital Statistics and we don't make those kinds of mistakes. <laughs> and she said, well, I just, you know, I, I won't stand for this. What do I have to do? I need you guys to change this. They said, well, you know, and after some back and forth, they said, well, look, if you can, if you can do a genealogical study, and get the court to mandate us to change it, then, then we'll change it, right? So she goes ahead and does the genealogical study, and she finds out that her great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was raped on the Guillory Plantation, right? And that she was 3.30 seconds black, right? So, so 3.30 seconds is not a lot black, right? Because if she's 3.30 seconds black and the rest white, that means she's 29.30 seconds white, and for most of us, it's like, well, if you're 29 compared to three, you know, you're probably more white than you are black, but that's not how race works, right? So it, yeah, it's one drop. And the drop in Louisiana turned out to be one eighth. So in Louisiana, she was just, I'm sorry, um, one sixteenth. So in Louisiana, she was just over one drop, which made her black. Yeah, that's right. And here's the trick. There's one person that could have, could have changed Susan Guillory Phipps's race, and who was it? Her husband. Well, not her husband. It's her mother. Because all her mother would have needed to do was to, instead of giving birth in Louisiana, got in a car, drove across the border into Alabama, where one drop was one-eighth, and Susie would have been white. Right? 
So race, we say there's nothing biological about race. Race is a completely political construct, but it's become so ingrained in the way that we built our systems and and our institutions in our country that we've almost internalized it as if it's a real thing. Um, So I want to wrap up with that. I don't know if there's any questions. We've got uh, some good time for discussion. um, Or if anyone else from the caucus wants to add anything. And I think at this point, it's, well, questions about the material, right? But also, um, we want to open it up to discussion about sort of implications for this about our lives here in Greensboro and, you know, the work that we all do in Greensboro. So questions, Uh, comments, either about the presentation or generally? Were the Mexicans and the Arabs and all that fit in that way to yeah, no, he said, he said, where do the Mexicans and the Arabs and all of that fit into the equation that we're talking about? And it's a really good question. And the answer is kind of that between 1619 and 1780, they weren't really in the equation. So when the Constitution of this country was written, there weren't really Mexicans in the equation. You know, the Spanish had their colonies going on in the west of the country, but this, you know, the, the 13 colonies were just on the east coast. So, Mexi- so Mexican-Americans didn't enter the racial arrangement until the late 1800s. Because the United States sort of acquired what would be more than a half of Mexico after the Mexican-American War in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, right? And same things with Arab people. They wouldn't nece- Arab people wouldn't necessarily immigrate to the United States in, in any sort of significant numbers until later. So the initial racial arrangement didn't include them. And that's part of why when people say, well, is this a black and white thing or is it a multiracial thing? We need to get away from black and white. Well, we'd like to get away from black or white, but we can't get away from black or white because black and white is where it started, right? Even Chinese workers, right? Even Asian workers, they didn't come over until a lot later. So that's a really interesting concept. And as, and as, as we think about this, you know, the United States was one of the only developed countries where the racialized sort of labor force was actually on the same landmass as the people who were generating the wealth from their labor, right? So the French had colonies elsewhere. The Dutch had colonies elsewhere. But in the United States, we, it was like white people and black people living together. So we had to figure out a way to say, how are we going to justify all men are created equal and an entire economy based on race, racial slavery? And that's why the, that, that racialization of white people as superior and black people as the most inferior became very important in the United States. I would argue, and other academics have argued. But thanks for that question. Um, I'm wondering if the reason that the Republican Party appeals so much to the lower income whites, does that go back to that separating the indentured servants from the blacks, and that the, the rich guys took care of them? Uh, well, I will say this, that the Jacksonian Democrats were the first one to do it. So if you go back and look at the, at the, at the Democrats, right, the Democratic coalition that came together in the first part of the 1900s, that a lot of that was about capturing that momentum, because remember, it was the Republicans who pushed abolition, right? And then had federal troops down here in the South, right? So the Jacksonian Democrats was the first coalition to come here and say, we don't need these feds down here, you know, forcing us into some kind of racial arrangement that's not our own. 
right? And if you look at the actual language of people during the Democrats during that time, there was a lot of racialized language to pull those people together. And then also, you know, that there was sort of this flip in a way that happened where that became, you know, the Southern strategy. People talk about the Southern strategy. That's, that's a, a, a big part of it. There's a book called In Another Country um, in which he outlines um, a lot of the way that that happened. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's really important also to remember, I mean, because for me, it helps me remember that this isn't a partisan issue, that all, you know, race kind of, tra- it's been around for so doggone long. Every political party has figured out how to kind of use that racial arrangement to their benefit. But yeah, we would say that that is, that is probably a lot of what's happening. <clears throat> Just a reminder that today's Republicans or yesterday's Democrats, I watched them cross the aisle with Fannie Lou Hamer in 1968 yeah. and 64, excuse me. And uh, yeah, they, uh, so I mean, while we can despise the Republican Party for a variety of reasons, including the advent of religion into politics in the 1980s. Um, this, all of us were a part of that machine in the 60s. All of us. And we were solid Democrat, yellow dog Democrat South. And if you were a Republican, we were kind to you and we, we you know, asked you to our daughter's wedding, but uh, we kind of pitied you too. Thank you. Is there any particle of this that is part of a local school curriculum? Thank you for that question. I'm not a plant. I thought that up on my own. (laughs) That is a good question. And I I think the answer is as far as I know, there's not, right? And in Maine, there's certainly not. I don't know, Margaret, yeah, you may know. In past years, there have been efforts to infuse the African-American history from Africa into our social studies curriculum, but I don't know where that is right now. So I don't know. But all of us knew those classifications. So that that part of it may be there. It's just the... Of the deeper meaning of what that was, I'm not sure where that is. Well, and just to speak to the community college, I teach at the community college mm-hmm. in Davidson County, um, and and we don't even teach African American literature anymore. Um, no other literature is considered really acceptable for community college, with the exception of American literature. So while we globalize courses all the time, we've, we've also gotten away from world literature, world civilization, some of those things. And that's, you know, sort of a combination of the Gates Foundation and our, our lovely state government. So, uh, On the teaching of the history, isn't it, isn't it almost exactly the opposite? Um, there's a case in Texas where we get our textbooks from to eliminate any context of slavery and label them as workers who were, who were immigrating to the United States to do quote-unquote work, uh, for which I'm assuming workers get paid. So that might lead to an uncomfortable conversation about what happened to their wealth and what happened to their labor. There's a 2003 uh, PBS uh, yes. uh, series called Race, the Power of an Illusion. And it's a three-part thing. Um, 
It's very well done. It costs $4.99 to stream that into your computer for one week. And it is money just beautifully spent. The first part of that is about the question of race is not biological. And it absolutely debunks the, the theory that there's anything scientific whatsoever about race, that genetically there is no basis for this concept whatsoever. I commend it to you. Excellent. Race, the power of an illusion. Um, I'd like to add to that that I just heard um, Dr. Joseph Graves, mm. who is professor at um, A&T, speak just last week. And again, he's a local professor here in town and has written two books on the subject. Um, the Emperor's New Clothes was his first. Uh, the Race Myth, and I forget the subtitle, um, was his second. And our library does have at least the second but again, we've got local scholars in town dealing with um, just this issue as well. Yeah, and he, he's actually featured in Race, the Power of an Illusion. And thinking back to what you said about the woman who was 330 330 seconds, seconds yeah. Well, um, I seem to recall reading something about a man in North Dakota who was a white, leader of a white supremacist group, and they just found out that he's 12 to 14 percent black. <laughs> I thought that was good. Um, also, um, and I'm wondering about this idea of this hierarchy of, you know, the whites and then the, um, the Asians and everybody else of color and then blacks being at the bottom. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering about that because I believe that Native Americans have the highest rate of suicide of any of the cultures, um, are less than 1% population, and in some of the communities, have 90% are diabetic. So I'm just thinking, I mean, bad is bad. <laughs> it's all bad, but... yeah. No, it's, it's a really good point. And I, I mean, I just, when I think about the history, it's, it's helpful for me to remember that it, it actually is literally the case that Native Americans were not fit into the racial construct in the United States because the, the plan was for them not to exist. That was literally the plan. And so where folks fall in terms of the arrangement now is different. But when, if you consider like why racism was developed, Right? If it was developed as part of you know, the way, sort of the glue to maintain this economic arrangement, it wasn't necessary to racialize Native Americans in the same way. They were warriors, right? I mean, we name, I mean, think about, we had to make them out to be incredibly violent. So our, our Tomahawk missiles are named after them. Our Apache helicopters are named after All of these war machines are named after Native Americans. The only good Indian is a dead Indian. <laughs> Right? It's just that whole ideology. Of, I was just at a wedding this past weekend at a summer camp, and they had these war canoes you know, down by the lake. You know, the whole camp was named after Native Americans, and there was these war canoes down there where you, you, know, you go paddle in these big canoes with all these people. And so that, the idea of what, was, what Native Americans were supposed to be in this country is kind of built into our culture too. So, yeah, I, I would say that. And then the other thing that I would say that is helpful for me about this arrangement is 
that fundamentally it really was set up white when it first came in to the, le- to the legal lexicon. It was actually about giving advantages to white people. So more than about oppressing people, it was about giving advantages to people. So yeah, I'm not sure where, I mean, I, I would say Negroid is at the bottom because of the, because of the history there, but you know, it does seem that this part can kind of move around you know, different groups can come up. Arabs can come up. Or move. Arabs were one place before 9-11 and another one afterwards. But white people are always the same because they're always at the top. But thanks for that point. I think it's a really good one. Um, yeah, I'm uh, a little bit curious about the, um, the history of John Punch. What we know about it. I remember reading somewhere recently that um, President Obama's mother um, oh, yeah. is descended from somebody named Punch. Is that the same person? I, I think I read that too, and it was John Punch. The, so, the, the article that I read did say that she was related to John Punch. So he had a life in spite of um, being being uh, put into servitude forever. Yeah, I don't actually I don't know personally what happened to him or how they were able to trace that, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pocahontas had any kids? She had a lot of kids, and there's actually. The, how about Ed inheritance? That's a really good. Right, right. Everybody else. Yeah, if you go home and Google the Pocahontas exemption, this is fascinating. There's a Racial Integrity Act in Virginia in 1924 where they actually, because they were going back and forth about who was white and who was not, right? And there's, there's a whole history of groups of people becoming white and then not being white. You know, so Indians you know, from Southeast Asia became white at a certain point and then were, they, their white status was taken away and a lot of people lost a lot of land. Right? Irish people were not white and then they became white. But there was, a, there was a case in 1924 determining exactly what white would be in Virginia. And they said that white would be someone who has no Negro or Indian blood whatsoever with a special exemption for the descendants of John Rolfe and Pocahontas. Specifically because they were such a part of the landed and, and elite class that if they were to be delanded, it would have really destabilized a lot in Virginia. It's a Pocahontas exemption. Look it up. It's really wild. Um, I, I guess the, the historical pieces are very good. I, I'm a historian, and I love history, uh, and, that, and that's very important. But I guess I, my challenge to the, the committees, the symposiums that are being proposed, is that at some point we bring it into the 20th century or 21st century, and we understand that the young people that we are trying to reach are not going to be in, excited about the, do, the documents, the uh, information that you just shared. They are this instant, the microwave generation or whatever they want to call it now. They want, it, they want something to happen and they want it to happen now. They, they, that this is very interesting and it gives us this background, but I would hope that at some point the, all of these suppose this is about the fifth session that I have been through been to uh, between Chapel Hill and uh, even yesterday at a funeral I went to and they were talking about this historical these historical da- uh, uh, data uh, and and I think it's, it's it's very it's beautiful to hear it, it gives us some sense of where we from whence we've come the Sankofa uh, 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 principle but I, I, I don't think it's going to do a whole lot to entice our young people, the ones that we need to be trying to reach, whether they black, whatever, red, black, yellow, green, whatever, to reach those young people. And I would hope that, because this is who we are trying to, this is who we are trying to inform. We're trying to get them, because we, our, our biases, our racism, our attitudes are set. 
if you're 60 plus in this group, your, your attitude is set. It ain't going to change. You may want it to, you may pray for it to change, but it's not. It, that is ingrained. But I think for young people, who the people we are trying to reach, we do need to come up with a way to bring it into this, into their, into their century, or where they are, and 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 help them to understand what 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 is in their best interest as far as moving forward and stopping this cradle to, 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 to prison pipeline, stopping all of these other kinds of negative um, situations that we find our young people in. And I think I, think I would hope this, these, these sessions uh, would, would at some point address it. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. I will say this one thing on behalf of younger people, that I have had young people in this, um, and they, they actually find it enlivening. For me, when I heard this history and history like this, I actually started to like history. Because it was like, wow, this is something that actually matters. Like this actually helps explain the stuff that I struggle with every day. But I mean point point really taken. This format probably is, you know, not the best for all young people, but um but yeah, thanks. I, don't misunderstand. I think history is fine. I think I think given that doctor, but I'm still saying right now we got we got to get yeah we got yeah issues, right and we need to address those you know right now absolutely and this this would be interesting to know but I'm, I'm thinking the crisis that we're yeah. in right now yeah we need some immediacy. Thank you. I, I would like to go back to the the point that was raised questioning whether the system was really based on capitalism mm. and get your response to it. It's not clear to me whether capitalism or race is <coughs> primary, but as you've said, they're, they're interlocked. One of the complications I think we have in thinking about the 1600s is we think of capitalists as running factories and banks. Well, in the 1600s, the capitalists were the landowners. The landed gentry in England and throughout Europe, they were the powers. And so when they came to the US, they were the capitalists. And their concern was to get commodity labor as cheap as they could. And that's fundamentally that struggle between the cost of labor and the profits that come out of what the labor produces that's the fundamental base of the capitalist system. And it has used race over and over again, and it keeps reshaping and redefining how those relationships work in production. Yeah, I want to go back to, to the, the person's question over here, which I think is really a superb one, or the point, not the question, uh, about uh, how the young black people living now need an approach that works for them. And uh, I couldn't agree more. That's incredibly valuable. I don't know how to do that. And I don't think very many people in this room know how to do that. Uh, when I look at my life and what I might do in this movement, I see an older white person who thankfully had some, about 1997, had some black and white people, one of them was named Nettie Code, who just start pushing me. I was born and raised in South Texas, and I was so steeped in racism that you couldn't believe it. And Nettie Code was gentle, forceful, persistent, 
all of this stuff. Okay, I look around at the people in this room, and my job is to try to figure out how to get us to move. You were talking about actions that were needed. I couldn't agree more. Mm. We've got to come up with action and how to do something about it. And people in this room actually befuddle me. I don't know how to get all this individualistically oriented people <laughs> together and in a collective movement, but that's what we need to do. And we're working on that, but we sure can use a lot of allies. We hear a lot of generalizations about what is and what is not being taught in our public schools about history and the history of racism. Uh, has any thought been given to uh, let's secure a, a history book from the high school curriculum and have a group to start studying it and seeing exactly what it is? I couldn't have the foggiest notion what's being taught in the, and I can't even remember what was taught when I was in school. <laughs> but I think it would, if we want to do something, uh, sir, that might be have some roots and some, some action to it, why not, why not take that as a project? Let's get this history book that's being presently used in Guilford County, and let's analyze it and see how accurate it is, what is not there, what ought to be there, and say maybe we can start a movement to do something about it. Yeah, what you described seemed to be a um, southern phenomenon, mostly. Virginia, I can understand how it might have traveled south, but from what I remember, the northern uh, colonies were getting settled in a different manner, right, even from different peoples from Europe. So how did, how did this notion of race translate north from Virginia? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what it... I mean, so I'm still learning all of this, right? That's, Leon Higginbotham actually goes into the legal history of Massachusetts and um, you know, looks at how things developed up there. <clears throat> um, what I do know is that we, we have to remember that all people who are white today weren't white when we came over. And there's a, there's, there's a book called White by Law, which talks about you know, how Irish became white, how Armenians became white, how Italians became white, you know, when Indians were white and then not white. So there's that whole history. And if Suzanne were here, she would say that the history of labor in the United States is the history of race, right? Because in the South, the primary labor force was, the industry was agriculture, right? The primary labor became, after this, became blacks, right, who were racialized. The primary industry in the Northeast was manufacturing, and the primary labor force was people who became white. But when they came here, they were they were racialized. It was no Irish and no dogs allowed, right? Italians were spicks, right? If you look at images of Irish people back then, the fat leprechaun drinking a beer, right? I mean, it looks almost like the same images that you would see of black people. So there's a long hit. So they were racialized. They then became white. And Suzanne would say that if you look at history, groups of people tend to become white when their numbers are more valuable than their labor. And that kind of becomes true because if you look at cities like Irish in New York, you know, you went from having Irish people where it was no Irish and no dogs allowed to all of a sudden every police officer on the force was Irish, right? Because you become white and then the first jobs that you get access to are all of the public jobs, right? Because that power structure begins to give you access. So when we think about the history, when we think about police relations in the United States today, we have to think about racism really deeply. Because like where I'm from, from Maine, 
every just about like 70% of the police force is men who come from families that weren't white when they first got to the United States. But the police force was their first access into the power structure. Right? And it makes sense in a way. A lot of my Latino friends, when they decide that they're going to make it, the best place for them to, to get upward mobility is to become policemen, the army, or to work for immigration. Right? So that thing, just like you know, here we talk about people becoming part of the system, and then when you identify with that power structure, you actually become a good defender of it, whether you know it or not. Like many of us in this room may defend the institutions that we work for, even though they create terribly racially inequitable outcomes. We defend them because that's where our paycheck comes from. Right? So you know, how do we begin to wrestle with that? So yeah, that's a really good question and a fascinating one. Um, for us to continue unpacking as we go through this year. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Faye. Let's uh, give him a hand. Great job. And we do want, uh, with each session, and we do hope you'll come back and help spread the word about the next session, which will focus on implicit bias. Um, but I think many of us have had the experience that of uh, realizing the history is with us. And it helps an awful lot in this work to know that history. Um, every, I, I hear this often, and I'm sure many of you do too, of people saying, can't we just move on? If we would just stop talking about racism. And often these are by very well-intentioned people. Um, we'd like to say around here, whoever you are, wherever you are in life's journey, you're welcome here. And, and that's true in these conversations. Wherever you are in this, it's okay. At the same time, learning that history and connecting it with what's happening today is, is so critical. And there are a lot of people who are at work and are doing things. Um, again, I want to thank the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance folks for all that they are doing. There are, right now, the art and dialogue process is going on. Counter stories is going on. There are a number of efforts you can be part of. Um, we will continue to send out information. If you give us your email, and we're going to start up some Twitter feeds as well uh, about things that are happening now that you can join in on. The, the um, Racial Equity Institute effort is, is marvelous, marvelous training. So I really encourage you to, to be a part of that. Much of what we've been doing in our, our community city working group has been talking about, in, in particular, how this history uh, plays out with uh, relationships with law enforcement. And we've been trying to look at particulars, in particular the scales case, and what can we do, how can we use this as a lens to figure out what will work, make all of this work better for all of our citizens in our community. Uh, so there is a lot going on. Um, and we want to continue to try and connect people with what is going on. We, this is such an amazing moment in this country, a teachable moment when more folks are paying attention. So we want to give folks as many ways into this as possible. So we will continue to send, we will not bombard you with a lot of, of uh, tweets or emails, but um, want to make sure we are connecting better than, than what we often have. I want to ask if any, for final words, uh, any of the Anti-Racism Alliance folks or any of the Community City Working Group, would all of you stand up who are here so people can see you? The Community City Working Group folks, would you stand up? Yay, thank you. And also the GARA, the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance folks, would you stand up as well? So if you want to stay and connect with any of these folks and hear, hear more specifics about what is happening.
and hear how you can connect and how you can get involved. Um, and, and again, we will keep building this. And, and Brenda, we will indeed keep bringing this into the present. But um, thank you very much. And thank you all again for coming.